0: Hi, everyone. We've got a special episode today um, that is coming to you from DePaul University. My friend Martha McGee got in touch as she did last year, asking if I had anyone who wanted to talk to her class, which is called The Writer's Room. Uh, It's a terrific group of kids. Martha's a terrific teacher, and they ask terrific questions. Um, And I thought, who better than to answer those questions than my pal Taylor Cox. Um Taylor has been in a whole bunch of writers' rooms, including uh, Miracle Workers, Girls Five Eva, single parents, uh, as well as a bunch of kids' rooms like uh, Polly Pocket most recently. Um, but she has great experience to talk about, and she has a lot of helpful information to share, uh, a lot of great stories and advice for the students whose questions are really excellent. I urge you to give this episode um, a listen. It's a little different than usual, uh, and I think really valuable. Um, Of course, thanks to Taylor for sitting in on this DePaul University class. Thanks to Martha McGee for making it happen. Enjoy.
1: They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the writer's panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now.
0: Before today's episode, I'm talking to the hosts of the Best Pick podcast, now authors of Best Pick, A Journey Through Film History and the Academy Awards, a new book which uh, is as good as the podcast. (laughs) Uh, I'm 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 on the 60s right now in the book. Uh, It's arranged chronologically. I'm on the 60s. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Um, Congratulations to all of you. Tom Slensky, Jessica Regan, John Dorney. Tom, let's start with you and tell us about where this book came from, please. Why, why do a book? You have this wildly popular podcast, millions and millions of listeners, and then you, you write
2: a book? Well, we designed a podcast which required us to do a lot of original research and uh we'd been compiling masses and masses of stories and behind the scenes trivia and statistics and then not to mention opinions and uh before we were i think even halfway through it was dawning on us that it would be a shame if this just disappeared into the ether because there are a lot of people who don't listen to podcasts or who would rather have access to this information in a more handy format So we did begin to talk about it quite early on. And initially, we somewhat naively assumed that what we would do would be to simply make one book chapter out of each episode of the podcast. Uh, But a little arithmetic demonstrated that this would lead us to writing a book which was about as long as the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And (laughs) Yeah, and it was made clear to us that... uh, yeah, we would be unlikely to get a publishing deal for a book of that scope. We're hoping
3: for a 10-part HBO series though. That <laughs> could probably yes. work. Like like and, and a drama, not a, not a, not a documentary, <laughs> a drama.
0: There's enough drama in the book. I mean, absolutely. Mm.
4: But very fortunately, um I'm uh, one of my chief collaborators is, is Joy Wilkinson, phenomenal writer uh, and now director as well. And um she is a was a, an early adopter of the podcast. We were doing uh, I was in a play of hers r- not long after the podcast had started, really. And certainly as it was gaining momentum, she was like, I listen to your podcast. It's good in that kind of way that, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this before. where people are like, no, it's good, I like it, you know, almost like pleasantly surprised. Um, so so she so she was an early adopter and she I she as a kind of a super fan of the podcast and I had guested it on it. Um I was telling her our conundrum, and she was like, It's really simple, Ten thousand words a decade like do you know do do the great the best picks the best picks of the ceremony the best picks of the the making ofs and and then and i was like but what about me because i have to do the history of cinema <laughs> you know <laughs> but uh, it was it was thrilling and you know we had three and a half years of research to draw upon and you know sometimes uh, rather snazzy turn of phrase in the podcast might have made it into the book as well you know because you go well I I couldn't come up with that uh so you know but I I did in that moment so um then we it was really instinctual how we divided up the the essays the long form essays where we maybe we well I mean Tom I think I think it was your the best of the best and and the worst of the best I think was was that your idea Tom I feel like it was yeah
0: let's talk about that format for a moment um and it, it you know it's a great almost recontextualizing of the podcast and the way you talk about films in the podcast and we get to revisit a lot of things but there's also a lot of new information and new takes on films um but yeah let's let's um talk about the way the book
4: but yeah we so so basically each each chapter you have much like the format of the podcast, you have uh, Tom with all the, the pics of the ceremonies, the most exciting moments that happened in that decade. You know, because some years were the maybe Roblo didn't sing Pride Mary, so you glide over that, you know. Um, or Sachin Littlefeather didn't invade the stage, you know, or she didn't invade, but uh, you know, where there wasn't like a kind of a dramatic moment. I mean, c- imagine an Oscars without a juicy calamity. Uh, so so Tom curated that, and then John, you would pick your favorite making of. And then I would do I, I like and then I would just do 2000 words or so on the, the trends and the innovations and, and like what was happening in at the time. But how did you pick your I'm sorry to take up the interview now? But like, I actually haven't asked you how you picked your, your, your making us.
3: Oh, um, it, it was largely just kind of I, I think a discussion and kind of which ones we remembered as being juicy and, and, and fulfilling and a few of them um a sort of absolute no-brainers like you know obviously gone with the wind you sort of have to do titanic you sort of have to do because these things are just um it, it's it's not shouldn't entirely be just looking for the disasters not that obviously those things are a disaster but they were just insane behind the scenes um but also there's also, there's things for looking for a good anecdote so I had to put Amadeus in because that had my favorite anecdote which I've bored these two with so many times that I won't repeat it here again but um and if you no 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 no, if the listeners want to find it out they've got a book they can purchase um so uh it, 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 was, it was things like that and if, it, if there was some interesting stories behind it um and, and and things that you might not have realized so yeah and in a few cases it was yeah absolute. Absolutely. obvious. I think my, you know, one of my favorites is Wings, which wasn't just because it was the first one. Um, that, that was, if anything, quite a lucky one, because I think often with a, the, the further you travel back in time, the harder it is to find making of. So and there are a number of cases where I slightly had to cheat or focus on the actors or find some other way around it. Wings is very much the exception because there is a lot about it. And, and what there is, is insane so um that was a great one to talk about uh but then yeah others you, you know there, there's a few sort of self-selecting because you can't really do yeah, you can't do the broadway melody you can't really do go- going my way not that you particularly want to um but yeah those yeah just that was it's very funny not the film the savaging the film is really bad so <laughs>
0: Let's talk about the takes. And it feels like, uh, obviously, this is the part that feels most like listening to the three of you uh, on the podcast or sitting in a room with you hearing you talk about movies, which obviously is, you know, what sets this book apart from other histories of the film industry or the Oscars. Um, In looking back for the book, were there new discoveries uh were there more heated arguments that could happen on the page because you weren't face to face with each other
4: i think there was a, a sense of look we if we're doing this we have to really enjoy it much like the, the, the podcast so follow your note follow your own nose we didn't really we didn't please each other's content you know tom did a magnificent job of editing us in text as he does in audio and making us come across much smarter than we probably are which I'm all in favor of um and you know so so we did we kind of were just like follow your nose follow your bliss you know and I was like well I'm bagsying all about Eve as the actress in the group you know and they're actually it all felt very intuitive and natural and of of course we were going to give Tom the apartment you know (laughs) like that was we could have all written an essay about the apartment but uh yeah it's definitely one for so it, it felt very natural and you know it's one of those things Ben like I hate to be that person but like So, you know, it's like, yeah, I wrote a book in lockdown and I loved it. I actually loved it. I had a ball. I just had so much like um, delivery food, barely left my bed and just just pushed through. And I loved it. I loved writing it. I was kind of sad when we were finished writing it, which is is obnoxiously an obnoxiously joyful process. But here we are.
3: I think as well, in terms of uh, any of the sort of arguments, I think. If we were writing, like, the best of or the worst of essays, which were nominally a a, a collation of everybody's thoughts, um, I thought it was always very important to try and feed everything in. And one of the advantages of doing the best of and the worst of was almost I mean it was never going to be something that one of us liked at all because they're usually that bad. Or for the best of the best, even if it's even if it's one which wasn't necessarily our favourite of the decade, it's one we go One well, at the very least I appreciate it and I like it. So it wasn't that much room uh for the diss- we say We're always going to be roughly speaking from the same page. Uh and we have a section in the book as well about did the Academy get it right, which kind of is roughly something from the pod as well, uh going through um each year by year. And uh, and I think that was less sort of argumented by virtue of the fact we're all doing our little personal essays and we could disagree and it didn't matter. And in some cases, there weren't <laughs> things I was doing deliberately just to wind Jess up, uh, which, which did happen more than once. Sure. Um, so so there's there's no point in winding her up if she's only like reading it like <laughs> weeks later, isn't it? It's this bit going, um, yeah, getting a message through going, what did you say here? No, there's no point in doing that. Um, um so yeah on that level it was less less argumentative
2: i think it would have been more of a problem in the original half a million words incarnation of the book where we would have had one essay for every single film and uh, as john said i think then it would have had to have been some sort of amalgamation of all of our viewpoints we had planned to do a couple of prosecution and defense essays uh, for films where we really did disagree Uh, like the departed, but, um, this version, we can simply not do a long form essay on the departed and avoid the problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What, um, I, and I think the joy that Jess is talking about having, uh, during the writing process absolutely comes through in the reading of the book. I mean, you, you three care about this material. Uh, you love this material and you love telling us about this material and, and that makes it fun to read. Um, What were some of the challenges? I mean, this is a different sort of undertaking. Uh, Tom and and John, you guys are both writers, but but, you know, this is this is an almost an academic book. There's so much research involved. There's so much storytelling involved. It's a huge amalgam of different kinds of writing. Um, So what were the challenges?
4: There was a sort of a beautiful moment where this, this muscle memory from my English and history degree that I got from UCC just kicked in, you know, that kind of like that sort of 2000 word structure. And I think when you're, it's, it's so much easier to write about something you care passionately about. So I really cared that Weta came up with a operating system that they coined massive. Like that's ridiculous and fascinating to me. And, um finding like oh, all the, all these uncali valley movies that were um you know a trend in the 2000s finding out how much bank women directors were making that nobody was talking about you know like nancy myers crazy numbers and you're going um, um so that's that's detailed in the in the 2010s i think and, and you're, you're you know i i felt if I felt any kind of it's not even a negative emotion I felt a real responsibility I also wanted to like if, if, if someone who is not going to stumble across all about Eve on television the way I did the way I you know stumbled across so many incredible films as we did television curated your golden oldie viewing right you know Sunday afternoon Ziegfeld Follies. Uh, christmas time singing in the rain and meet me in saint louis you, you know before we had streaming before we had we were almost paralyzed by choice and i suppose for me i was like uh, if someone has this book they can curate their viewing through the decades that they won't be like oh whoa, well where do i start with the 30s you know we'll start with it happened one night it's terrific that, that that was the thing that kind of I, I I held myself, that was what I held myself towards. So that really helped because I did feel like this isn't actually all ego and indulgence. This is kind of this is a, this is an offering. This is a service. This is a curation.
0: Um, Tom, what about for you in in being the person who has, who takes it upon himself to put it all together and make this a
2: cohesive whole? uh tell me a little bit about that process well i didn't want to do it i didn't want to sort of smooth it out too much all the sections are very clearly authored so there was no need to try and write everything into the same voice uh but uh yeah as jess said i just sort of did the job that i do on the podcast and just tried to make sure that uh everything seemed to me at least to be readable and to to make sense and would make suggestions sometimes about cutting things here or expanding on things there uh, and then I did all the donkey work, uh, like um, compiling the bibliography, as I've mentioned, uh, and compiling <laughs> the index. Uh, not my favorite part of the job. And if you look at the index, you can see the bits where I got bored and started being silly.
0: <laughs> we love an Easter egg. To what you were talking about, Jess, uh, you know, I do think that as a fan of you and uh, you three and of the podcast, I'm enjoying the book because I love hearing your voices again. I love reading your voices uh, in this book. Um, I was talking to my wife about it this morning, who, you know, she did our live show uh, with us, she produced our live show, and has listened to the podcast. And she said, I still have a list of 25 movies from when we did that one show that I want to watch. So. I can't wait to <laughs> jump into the book and come up with a list of, you know, 200 movies that will keep me for the rest of my life. Oh, wow. Um, which, like, it feels like these are that, the readers for you.
3: But it's also for me as well, because I've got a list that's about as long as like, like several hundred from just like taking recommendations from these guys. And things that we go, you know, because we, well, we've seen a lot. We, we haven't seen everything. And it's always good to find something new. I mean, I'm, I'm always very keen that i haven't seen everything just on the basis of going i don't know what i'd watch tomorrow (laughs) uh so you've got to like hold off on some and, and get to them eventually
4: and the direction the direction the podcast is taking now a little bit you know uh again we're just sort of following our noses following our bliss so we are picking up on some of those films that were mentioned that were picks above other films you know for example like my life as a dog i picked one year um, and, and we did an episode about that, and, and that's been really fun as well. And as as wonderful as this whole process has been, you know, we are mixing it up in terms of it's not so sort of Anglo American, uh, you know, because we have done a serious body of work on those films, you know. Um, but it, I think as well, the book ends just before COVID hits, the, the the last ceremony before COVID happened, and Parasite mm. won, and it felt like a very joyous endpoint to to the Academy Awards because you see us tr- slogging through the 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 te- the noughties, you know and just be like oh my god oh my <laughs> god this is really uphill and it feels like things are getting worse they, they were good it was good in the '90s what's happened you know and then for it to kind of all of a sudden take take kind of a great a huge leap forward um, with that ceremony and with, with those awards uh, that that felt very kind of like it, we end on quite quite a hopeful note before. You know before what happened, happened.
0: Um, yeah that was the uh, series finale of the academy Awards and it was a they stuck the landing it was a great finale I don't love the reboot I'll be honest yeah. with
4: you no i just don't think it's <laughs> canon you know it's to me it's not pure it's like um it's like terminator right. genesis you know i don't really recognize it i don't recognize <laughs> the christian <laughs> at all.
0: um so best pick <sighs> uh, a journey through film history and the academy awards is the book folks should check it out you can get it from all of your uh all, all of anywhere you buy books it's a book you guys know how to find that um the yes go ahead well Oh we're yeah!
4: Very proud to say that it's it's actually uh, on sale in the Academy Museum Bookshop. Truly, one of our proudest moments, uh, and we're so grateful for them to to have our book. And they they were very enthusiastic uh, and receptive to our pitch. So uh, that is quite thrilling, and I hope we hope to go to L.A. before too long and t- take the pictures and do all, do all that lame stuff. Very <laughs> not cool on this podcast, and that's okay.
0: It's, it's part of the charm. Uh, meanwhile, Best Pick, the podcast, uh, carries on, as Jess said, with a um, slightly new format. Um, the same things you love about it, though. Uh, history, appreciation, and opinions. Um, Tom, Jess, John, thank you so much for being here today. Congrats on the book. We Our
4: pleasure. It. And thank you for being such an early adopter and such a supporter, Ben. It's really meant a lot. Uh,
5: Taylor Cox, thank you so much for being here. Um, oh, thank I th- you
6: for having me. Oh,
5: thank you. you know, I know you've worked on so many shows and I'm not going to read the whole list, but I'm just going to read a couple here.
6: Oh, thank you. <laughs>
5: But as a writer and producer on shows uh, ranging from Kung Fu Panda, Puss in Boots, Polly Pocket, The Kicks, Just Add Magic, to Abby's Single Parents, Miracle Workers, and Girls Five Eva. Yeah. (laughs) So you know, our class is the writer's room, and we're working as a class as a writer's room, and we're working on a
6: a season of a series.
5: And so cool. We have a lot of
6: questions for you. <laughs> Great. I mean, I'm sure I'll have a lot of questions for you guys too. I can't wait to find out you guys are doing it so much better than we've been doing it.
5: <laughs> well, I'm just going to start off just asking you just the first question. I know you're from Chicago and we are all in Chicago. So when did you move? Um, did you move from Chicago um, to LA and when and why did you do that?
6: I did, yeah. Well, I am from Chicago. I went to University of Wisconsin, which I loved very much, although, as I just mentioned, we only had one radio, TV, and film class, like, combined into one. Um, I didn't actually know any of this. Like, I guess I knew, in theory, this was a career path, but I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, nor did I see it as, like, a feasible option, really. Um, So, I majored in journalism, and then... Uh, honestly, you know, I I love my parents. They're so wonderful and supportive. But I was kind of brought up thinking like the most creative thing we could really do is like go into advertising, and so I was like, advertising it is. And I got a job doing media buying in uh, Los Angeles. So when I graduated, I moved out here. To pursue that. Um, I was probably the worst media buyer on this planet. Uh, Somebody gave me a calculator on the first day and I was like, oh no, like this just isn't going to go well for any of us. Uh, Not how my brain works. And I, yeah, I kind of from there started taking improv classes to make girlfriends because I didn't know too many people out here and sort of fell in love with it and realized like, all of these people were trying to do this for a living. And I was like, this is way cooler and way more fun than media buying. No offense to anyone whose family's in media buying. I'm sure they love it. Um, They're probably way better at math than me. Um, And then, yeah, I I sort of fell in love with it, joined a sketch team, um, got really addicted to uh, just the process of creating and um, it sort of just took me from there. So that answer your question? So that is how I moved here.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting that you moved and then you started doing improv and, and things like that. Like you actually moved. Totally.
6: Out. I mean, it's so wild. You know, I, I started dating my, my now husband and realized, and he was like, you're from Chicago. Like, did you go to second city all the time? And I was like, well, I'm from the suburbs. So no, like we went to, you know, we went to the city like once a year to see a Christmas play. Like <laughs> there was not really a lot of time spent downtown. Um, but yeah. So I think the fact that you guys are doing this is just like, so, so rad and um yeah, I'm sure helpful in terms of deciding if this is what you want to do or not. And, um, you know, wetting your palate with it.
1: One quick question. Um, Now that you're like working in the industry, one thing that I get really confused by is like, you know, between writing fellowships and internships, like from your perspective, what's a way that like, you know, a novice like me can quote unquote break in or like get a Totally.
6: So you will hear different break in stories from literally everyone you talk to. Um, uh, There's... uh, truly no bad way to do it. Um, and I wish I could give you the shortcut. If somebody if somebody comes up with it, please let me know. Um, I, for one, uh, again, I think because I didn't really know too much about how the industry worked, I started doing sketch and trying to write things before I knew, you know, like the assistant route was even a thing. Um, I ended up getting like an assistant job as the second assistant to, no, I was the third assistant to the CEO of MGM, um, the most glorified receptionist that could ever exist. I answered phone calls from people being like, can I please please speak to Tom Hanks? And I'd be like, do you think he lives here? He does not. Um, and so that didn't quite work for me. I tried so hard to get writer's assistant jobs, which if you can get that job, phenomenal. It is such an amazing way to get to see how a room works. If you haven't already, however, you already have this amazing class. So now you guys are getting a little taste of that as is. Um, So I personally um, didn't go that route. Uh, I wound up, let's see, how did I end up doing this? I wound up writing a bunch of sketch on a team for ios before it went down um but there's a bunch of sketch there's a bunch of like improv studios out here similar to chicago which is a great way to get your reps in uh if you guys are have any free time um, and disposable income i know it can be expensive um but i started taking uh, classes and writing on a sketch team and through that i met someone who introduced me to an exec who was looking for writers for these mini writers rooms that were doing sketches so so actually like the Kung Fu Panda and the Swamp Talk with Shrek and Donkey and the Puss in Boots, all that stuff was actually sketch comedy. So I wrote like it was non-union and I wrote like one minute sketches for all of these fun characters, which was phenomenal. And then through that, my boss ended up getting helping me get my first agent from there. Um, and then I ended up pairing up with a writing partner. I can talk about all that stuff later. But all this being said, my path to doing it was like pretty Uh, like obscure, I suppose. Um, The assistant round is awesome. The fellowship route is fantastic for some, but there are some red flags. I would say there are some really, really amazing programs out there, but there are a lot of programs that I would call nothing but scams where it's almost like a pay-to-play where you're paying to have people read your scripts. And I just personally think that's like, should be illegal, like casting director workshops, for example. Um, But if you can get into some of the like, more amazing ones. Like I know um, ABC has am- an amazing uh, diversity fellowship and you know, Nickelodeon has a great fellowship and uh, the blacklist is incredible. If you can get in with them, they really do take the time with you to like develop your specs uh, and help introduce you to agents and managers and then also potentially work to get you on your shows. Uh, like when I was on Single Parents, our staff writer came from, one of the 20th or ABC fellowships and was so ready because of that, because the fellowship had really um, trained him. And so he came in as a staff writer and knocked it out of the park. Um, Whereas sometimes, you know, little old me entered the writer's room and had no clue what I was doing. And, you know, thankfully I had a very lovely uh, first time boss who was like so gentle with me and and explaining to me like how to do everything and understanding that, you know, maybe I had, have some some like raw talent there, but I was by no means trained. Um, so it's a route, but it's uh, a tough route. Hello, hey.
7: <laughs> so I, I mean, I know that you are like are out in LA and you're based predominantly in LA. And from what I've heard, like LA is kind of the place to go for writers. Um, um, one of one of my questions is is like, you know, I've I've been out to LA a couple times. I don't think it's the city personally for me. And I was, sure. you know. Because like you're more ingratiated in the industry. I was wondering if you know of any other like cities, locations that like are starting to develop more like writing centers or like that are becoming more film hotspots. And if you could tell me what those are and like what cities kind of cater to those strengths. Um, Yeah,
6: absolutely. Well, first of all, New York, of course, New York is a total hub for um, for. And I should also preface this with I um, have uh, pretty much exclusively worked in comedy. Um, I did work for one mystery series, but uh, there perhaps are more dramas elsewhere that I'm unfamiliar with. Um, So I apologize if I'm missing um, a large chunk of information I could be sharing. But New York is huge, LA is huge. Um, I know Atlanta has started to have um, a heftier scene. Uh, I, for the most part, those have been the two big hubs for where writers rooms meet. However, this is such a like unique time in the world because of, uh, because of Zoom and because we can access each other in such a lovely way. Um, I'm happy to talk about the perks, the ups and downs of um, Zoom rooms. But I think one of the really, really special things about Zoom rooms is that you can work from from anywhere. Um, and I personally love LA, but I miss Chicago like crazy. So the fact that I could, you know, work from Chicago for six months of the year, um, and, you know, meet my new niece, like, hang, see my parents, hang out with friends from college and high school, like, you know, I sound like I'm the biggest super spreader in the world. Um, <laughs> we were all vaccinated pre Omicron, um, but we, but yeah, but being able to do that, I think, was super special. I actually, I'm in a a thread right now with a bunch of uh, wonderful women who are asking if people preferred Zoom or didn't prefer, like if they liked it or if they thought it was the worst. And one woman today made a really... special case for wise Zoom rooms and working remotely is such a great thing. And the biggest reason was uh, she had staffed a room and she was able to hire people um, like you who didn't want to move to the coasts and who were a special talent and wanted to be part of the room. And because of that, she's able to curate a significantly more well-rounded room. And it's not just like you know, people who consider themselves coastal elites, it's people with different points of view who want different things out of life, who um, are able to now make her show um, more well-rounded and authentic. And I think that um, there's something really to be said about that. And I I hope that there's a bit of a hybrid because I personally will go what go crazy if I don't see human beings uh, anytime soon. Um, but other than that, I think, it. Uh, I hope that there is some way that we can keep this working because um, like you said, you know, not living in two cities in the United States shouldn't, you know, deter you from getting to be in this fun industry.
8: Hello. Uh, I just wanted to know, like, what challenges or difficulties you found transitioning from, like, improv and sketch to writing on, like, sitcoms?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, it's, I would say uh, the sketch community was a really wonderful training ground for me. Uh, As I said, I really was new to this. So I was really up against people who had gotten to go to film schools and who had, you know, known about this industry or grew up in LA and had been writing scripts since they were children. Um, And meanwhile, I had Microsoft Word and was like, is this what it's supposed to look like? And really had no idea. Um, So the sketch uh, world was a really wonderful place for me to, uh, first of all, hone in on things like structure and, you know, in comedy, like little things like learning what the rule of threes was, which I had no idea about, or um, honestly just getting to put things on their feet in a safe space. Um, you know, I had written for the newspapers, like in at Wisconsin, so you get to read it, but you're never like seeing if anything, not that, not, not that I was making jokes as a reporter, but you don't get to see how anything like plays out loud. And if, and when you do sketch or improv, you really get to see if the audience is responding to your material in an an honest way. And I think, you know, sketch and improv communities are such a safe space. Um, They were for me. I will not say they are all safe spaces. I had a very positive experience in my personal community, uh, being able to put things up and fail and be so, so bad until I started getting better. Um, I still work with a lot of people on my sketch team who are like, yeah, you were terrible and now you're great. Like (laughs) you just learn a lot and there's something to be said about just having a place where you feel safe to just put up a million things until finally something gets a laugh and then you can learn why that got a laugh and sort of start catering toward that and sort of figuring it out. Um, But that being said, uh, to answer your actual question, transitioning then into uh, long form, I think the hardest part for me was, um, was twofold. One, sitting down and actually doing my homework which means like actually learning how to write something long form because sketches can be like two pages and writing two pages was significantly less daunting than writing 30 pages. Um, and two, just the imposter syndrome of it all. I mean, you know, you, you sit down and you think like, I'm funny, I can do this. And then you start to panic and be like, oh God, can I do this? Um, and that's actually when I got a writing partner who uh, we don't work together anymore, but she was awesome. She now does stuff in the drama space. Um, and I'm so grateful to have had her because you know, working with someone that you love, even if you both fail, you're able to look at that person. And I could be like, well, Jackie's great. Like, and if Jackie's great, I don't think she's going to fail. I don't think she's bad. So I can do this again. And she was able to do the same with me being like, well, I know Taylor's funny. So like we can do this again. So even when we were getting rejected, we were able to sort of keep ourselves going until our scripts finally landed and we got our first like bigger staffing gig. Um, But yeah, I I think the hardest part of writing is is the willingness to be bad until you're good um and that comes with transitioning from any platform to the next
8: hi there my name is omar
6: hey hey omar how's it going
8: i'm doing well i know most of the questions have been about the industry but i want to ask you about your creative process sure with writer's block and i know you were just talking about your writers writing partner back mm-hmm. in the day. do you think collaboration helped a lot with writer's block at all or
6: yeah, you know, I think I think collaboration really helped me um, personally get my work done. Um, I was not the most organized college student at all. Um, somewhere, my parents are laughing hysterically that I we said that so delicately. Um, I was a terrible college student, um, and I think finding something I loved so much made me be like, okay. Like, if I want this to work, I actually have to work for it. Uh, But it's really, I find it's very easy to let yourself down or make excuses for yourself, um, at least for me, in terms of being like, well, I'm not going to do my homework today, but I'll do it tomorrow. But having a writing partner um, was like kind of like having just an accountability partner in terms of being like, well, I can let myself down all day, but I'm not going to let her down. And I told her that I would get her 11 pages by tomorrow. So I'm going to get her 11 pages by tomorrow. So I think having... um, someone to hold me accountable, helped me build that muscle. I will say the more you write, the more you you really do build that muscle. And the more, again, it's like so stupid. I say it's like exercise after telling you guys that I don't exercise, Um, but it's basically, like any other muscle, it gets stronger the more you use it. Um, Now I find that, you know, it's not necessarily writer's block. Sometimes it's just finding how to like channel, like where to channel my energy. and being able to sit down and just do it. Cause I often find that writer's block is just like, oh my God, I'm going to quote like the artist's way, which is humiliating, but like, it's just resistance. And it's just like something in your body feeling like afraid to do it. Uh, Whereas like, if you sit down and just like start, you you find that the writer's block sort of fades away. (laughs)
5: Um, I just wanted to focus on like the logistical side of being in a writer's room. Sure. How many weeks out of the year does like a writer's room meet and work? And then like how much of that time is development versus actually like turning out pages?
6: That's a really, really wonderful question. So it completely depends on what show you're on, um, <laughs> who you are as an artist, uh, and what you want out of your career and what you can sort of land. Um, so... In the past, uh, as you probably have noticed, shows used to get significantly larger series orders. So like for example, you know, Friends or like even New Girl would get like 23 episode orders. Uh, because of that, writers were working like the full year on one show um, and making significantly more money. So like <laughs> we joke around that every house in Malibu is just 90s writers who like got residuals and like all now live in mansions. Um, whereas I will live forever in my rent control department um which is fine um but basically uh because of that because of series getting smaller uh if you only work one show a year you could work anywhere from like 14 to 20 weeks um that is if you're lucky enough to staff so like the last show I was on was 20 weeks of the room and then about another month of um I was on for like another month of uh, production. So, you know, when you produce your episode, you're on set, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, And then last year, let's see. So, this past year, I, had one sh- I was on one show that went until February, and then I had March, April, May, June, and then I had four months of hiatus, um, which sounds fun to have four months off a year, but it's also quite scary because you don't ever know where your next job is coming. So some people are more chill about that. I'm a little less chill about it. Um, so during my hiatus is when I personally focus on development. Um, so I've um, been lucky enough to sell a couple shows, one that went to network and um, it's definitely easier for me personally to develop when I'm not in a room. Uh, also, some contracts don't let you develop when you're in a room, but others do. So some people develop on top of their uh, on top of their staffing, and some people sort of split the year depending. Um, my personal dream, I love being in writers' rooms, so I would love to get, you know, to continue being on like two shows a, a year. Uh, just so that I can stay busy because I just thrive in that type of environment um, and then find time for development you know on the side because development is fun, but it's significantly more isolating since it's just you. It's a lot more like writing features um, which I don't do uh, Yes but um, but yeah, uh, it, it totally depends on the writer and what jobs you're getting. Um, I will also say that might sound daunting um, but this career path is, what is a crazy ebb and flow where it's like, you know, I've had friends who went like 12 months without staffing and then this and then immediately sold two shows staffed again and then got an overall deal and they're now fine for three years. So it's like, it's, you know, you never know who's going to be really busy one year and not so busy the next. It's no indication of how your career is going to go long term um, as long as you keep working hard and, you know, be nice to people.
5: I have a follow up question. You mentioned that. um you really love working in a writer's room?
6: I love it with all my heart. It's my favorite. Well, what do you love about it? Sure. Like I, I truly do feel so, so lucky to get to do this for a living. Um, even though I'm, you know, a week into hiatus and already biting all my narrows off with panic on where my next job is going to come from. Um, but I, I absolutely love, especially being in comedies, comedy rooms um, and getting to work with people who are just like better than me because they've been doing it longer and getting to like learn from those people and then you know collaborate with those people and and be able to learn that like you know you can hold your own with those people and it's just fun and you know every job is different of course like there are some jobs that are slightly more challenging than others um, but I mean, this last job in particular was so much fun. Everyone was just so funny. Our boss, Meredith Scardino, might actually be the smartest and funniest person I've ever met. Um, and just being able to work on things that make you laugh. I mean, I don't know, maybe you guys should go into media buying first so you can see how horrible other jobs can be. <laughs> and then switch to this where you're like, this rocks, I'm willing to give it my all because I want to be in this industry forever. But um, it's really fun. and And just nothing makes me happier than like, hearing jokes that my brain would never come up with and being like that person is so special but then you know having a joke land of my own and being like oh I did it it's it's just a blast also free lunch oh,
5: <laughs> yeah we did have a, a question about craft services
6: but... I can't wait for the craft services question
5: uh, I had a question that's kind of personal so what is your favorite show and character from that show and why
6: Oh, that's a great question. Oh my God, I'm, I'm so stressed about that now. Um, you know, recently my favorite show uh, was probably The Good Place and Chidi is just one of the best characters of all time. I just love him with all my heart. Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I just, I thought that show was so special and so smart and that character in particular just um, really rocked. Thank you. Great question. <laughs>
4: awesome
6: hi hey um, i'm the craft services question love it i'm ready bring it on <laughs> like because like I just, like do you get to pick your snacks Wait, i cut you off when i was talking what was the question sorry what does craft services look like do you get to like pick your own snacks great question okay so First of all, I should mention that because I have been working remotely for the last two shows, I haven't gotten craft services uh, in two years and I miss it like crazy. And the studios and networks are saving so much money not having to pay for our lunches in our office space. So they should pay us more. We'll discuss that in writers guilds once I get you guys all to be guild um, members and we can all um, riot together. Um, however, when we are in person, uh, the kitchen is always stocked. It's phenomenal. There's usually a PA um, sometimes you get the best days in the world we had this wonderful PA Will who used to make us like cheese boards with like immaculate like special cheeses and like come in at 3 p.m with like it would be like cheese and nuts and chocolate and fruit and then by 3 30 like nobody could breathe like and <laughs> everyone needed a nap because they were so special um, and then free lunches which is so great which for me being you know <laughs> I just love that shit. So I'm all about it. Usually they pass it around a menu every day and you just sort of order your food. Um, there's like, of course, a limit on how much you can get. Um, if there wasn't, uh, we would probably bankrupt Disney. Um, but it's, it's, yeah. And then if you work late, they oftentimes get you dinner as well, which is, uh, you know, a, a sort of a consolation prize for having to be there at later hours. Um, But yes, do you have any other specific questions? I personally uh, love a good popcorn, love a good cookie tray. People bring in baked goods all the time. That's a treat. Sometimes people's agents send like cupcakes and stuff. Those are special days. Um, Yes. Oh, and then what's really fun is after... I'll go around this. I'm not going to stop this food question. Sorry, Ben. Um, so at uh, during production, uh, typically at the end of every two weeks of shooting, uh, the director and the writer of the episode will buy the crew a food truck for the day. And so everybody will uh, bring, so you'll, so it'll either be like a coffee truck, an ice cream truck, a ramen truck, a taco truck. Um, so when you're on set, the last day of set is always a fun treat. So. Yes, I really love that fist pump.
5: (laughs) So personally, uh Single Parents was one of my favorite shows when it was on. So I just thought
6: thanks for watching.
5: About your um your experience working on it and how that was.
6: Oh, I loved it with all my heart. It was such a fun show. Um JJ Philbin is also just an absolute genius and like one of the kindest and funniest humans ever. Um, I love, 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 loved working for her. She rocks. Um and yeah, so JJ really just did such a fantastic job of creating just like a really positive atmosphere, which I feel like, like any job, if your boss rocks, it's going to be like a trickle down effect of people just like wanting to do their best for you. Um, and because she's so funny and warm and open to, um, you know, open to pitches and like wants to create a creative space, Um, everyone else is willing to do that too. Um, It was also just a really fun room because everyone on that show had written for New Girl. So I was really one of the few new people. And so they were all super close, but in a way that they were very warm and embracing toward me as well. But it's just funny working for people and with people who've known each other for 10 years and are like, you know, practically siblings at this point. Um, But yeah, it was just so fun. And I mean, all the actors are so great. I mean, Leighton and Kimri especially, uh, were so, just so professional and wonderful to work for and write for. And um, yeah, I felt so lucky being on that show. you rocked.
8: Just to brag about DePaul a little bit, we have a sketch comedy course that we offer here.
6: Oh, amazing. God, um, you guys have everything. What the heck?
8: But after finishing that course, I have a couple like sketches, but I want to know what do I do with my sketches afterwards? Where should, how do I get them read? What, what should I do with them?
6: So do you want to like put, there's several things you can do with your sketches. I always recommend when you write a sketch to find a place to put it up, Um, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of theaters that have sketch nights you can submit to. Um, I'm not as familiar with the Chicago scene, but I I would assume Second City and IO out there have a lot of similar um, uh, like sketch nights where you can submit for teams, um, try to get your stuff read there and be able to sort of put it on its feet to know if it works. Um, there's also, if you want to write sketch comedy, um, every year SNL has an open call. Um, all the late night shows usually take sketch packets. Uh, so I know, um, you know, it's usually a combination of late night jokes and then also like Corden always does sketch packets, um, since they have such a sketch heavy uh room and yeah and i mean I, I would get notes from all your friends get it as funny as you can and then get ready to send it off and then get ready to write a hundred new sketches
8: <laughs> thank you <laughs> hello hey so my question is about joke writing and pitching jokes and workshopping jokes within the writing sure. how does that typically work
6: Oh man, I can't believe I forgot about this when I was talking about how much I love the writer's room. So the best part of writer's rooms is for me personally, is the joke room. So oftentimes writer's rooms uh, will split up uh, if, especially if it's a large room and uh, some and you know, you're on tight deadlines. So some rooms will continue to plow ahead in terms of story structure. and then other people will be in just what's called the joke room. And basically your boss will just bold all the jokes in the script that they think we can beat. and then you just pitch like as many jokes as you can and go through and then you go through and highlight the winners and then your boss picks whichever one goes in the script. And it's just so fun to like, you know, find a joke area, go at it, see somebody pitch a new joke area, go at that. I mean, especially on Girls5eva because, you know, it's like the, the Tina and Robert camp has, absolutely mastered joke writing and they are so funny and the people who came up in that are absolute joke wizards and so watching them and getting to learn from them just get to like really craft a joke and in little ways of being that you start to you know like like ending on the funny word or different letters that are funnier than others and you just start to like sort of feel it in your head but also just like see it work on Um, Sorry, this is probably way too myopic, Um, but yes, joke rooms are the best. It's uh, super fun, and and, um, I think finding joke structures that work, and then also finding your own unique ways to like, you know, avert the structure and do something, you know, bananas is what really gets laughs, and that's what makes people stand out.
0: Um, I think during the craft services question, you (laughs) mentioned that you were in uh, in the writer's guild. How did like getting into it look, and like what was the process? Was it difficult?
5: Oh,
6: sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's so, it, it's so funny, like looking back, cause at the time everything feels like so impossible. And then it just happens in like, in a way where I just have to believe if you just like keep working and like, and working smart and, and be willing to take notes and, and do, you know, do the hard work that you will, that it will all eventually happen. Um, but for me, uh, I got into the writer's guild uh, once I got staffed on The Kicks, which was my first uh, actual WGA show, and typically I think right now it's if you get two scripts, or like maybe two thirty minutes or one sixty minute, that that you can join the guilds, and then you sort of have to earn. Um, earn more credits toward your guild standing, uh, in order to stay in the guild and also get your health insurance. Um, so you do have to sort of keep working, but, but they allow you to backlog it. So at a certain point, you don't have to be, um, too terrified about losing guild standing or, um, uh, insurance. Um, although it depends, especially now is a little harder just because again, series orders are shorter.
5: I had a quick question. Well, maybe it's okay. not. Where <laughs> about the mechanics of the writer's room? Like, um, say, day one, you start. Mm-hmm. Are you starting from complete scratch? Are you building the season? And you know, how does it? What's the hardest
6: part? Yeah. That- You know, it's completely different, completely different in every room. Um, I've worked on shows where my boss completely knew going into it. um, You know, since your showrunner is oftentimes the show creator or co-creator, I've gone into shows where the co- where the creator has known exactly where they want the show to go. Uh, So in the beginning, we will, you know, Hear what they want to do. Of course, things can change and evolve, but they will tell us um, sort of like the season arc of where they want to go and where they get wanna to get to, um, especially which is um, not uncommon if they had to pitch it to the network in order to get another season. Um, so because of that, they've done some of their due diligence and know what's happening. Uh, I've also been on shows where, um, you know, I was on an anthology series uh, where they had gotten a quick series pickup and didn't, and they knew the general gist but they didn't really know the characters or where it was going to go or anything like that. Um, so, you know, starting day one was really a blue sky, which can be really fun too, because, you know, instead of coming in and just writing toward the characters uh, that already exist, you can really sort of um, help create those characters, which is its own special thing. Um, but it, t- it totally depends on uh, the showrunner and, and how much they've come in with. Um, also oftentimes how much time you have, if you, um, are in a luxurious room with more than, you know, 14 to 20 weeks, they may feel like they can come in with a little less. Uh, if you, if that's not the case, um, it would behoove the showrunners to come in with a little more, which is often the case. Um, yeah, but, um, but coming in, yeah, the first few weeks, no matter what always end up being a little bit blue skies. I actually, on a couple of shows have also done, uh, what's called packets, where we basically as homework go out and write um, like six page packets of possible uh, series or episode ideas, character ideas, um, joke ideas, and uh, then we put them all together in a big doc and we read them. Um, oftentimes very little from the packets are used, but, that me- but they spark a lot of conversation um, and you know, get the conversation going right off the bat. So that's a helpful way to start the writer's room. Um, but yeah, I've seen all sorts of ways. My question
1: is uh, based off of that, like you've gone from, as you said, from room to room where some people have a more developed idea some people don't they worked on animated shows, live action shows, a mystery. What are some general rules of thumbs? Like you've picked up from like being able to like to go from so many different rooms and write so many different scripts.
6: Totally. Um, you know, I think one of the toughest things to learn as like an artist for everyone is that when you are a staff writer on somebody else's show, it's not your show. So it, your job isn't to write your best show your job is to write your boss's best show so I think there's something that really um, differentiates um really good writers in the, in rooms versus maybe people who are, are really great but should write independently and it's people who are um, more collaborative and willing to pitch into their boss's ideas and that's not to say that you can't be like I hear you but um you know like try to steer the ship in other directions um But just learning that there's a power in yes anding, um, for those of you doing improv, um, as opposed to being the naysayer, um, you really just never want to be that naysayer in the room. Um, So I think that has been one big thing I've learned. Um, I also think animated kids, live action, mystery, comedy, no matter what you're writing, I find that... The thing that really gets people coming back is good characters. And, and no matter what genre you're writing for, if you can really make sure your characters are specific and have specific relationships to each other, those are the shows that are gonna shine. Um, and yeah, I think those are a couple other things.
7: Okay. Um, so I know that you were talking about, um, you know, the times that you are working on a project or on a show or something, and then the time that you have off. Um, are, in the moments where you are working on a show, um, what does that work home life balance look like? Sure. Like I I know, I know a lot of people will do writing on the side and stuff, but how much of that writing is getting done in the writer's room itself and how much is getting done like at home? Like, and are you able to kind of like do a little separation of work at home or is it blending together a little bit more?
6: Yeah. You know, again, I would say it depends on the show. Um, there are some showrunners who are incredibly, um, you know, efficient and also more, you know, family oriented. Uh, so if there's, you know, some, some people, it'll be 10 to five, and then they don't want to talk about work. There won't be homework assigned. You don't really have to think about it until the next day. Um, that being said, I don't think it ever hurts. Like you usually end the day, It's rare you end every day on like, oh, we solved it. Usually you end the day with some type of puzzle of like, we didn't quite land that act two break. So sometimes it doesn't hurt to think about it um, if you really want to go above and beyond in the writer's room. Um, And some shows um, just require a little more homework. Um, Again, I think a lot of that too is that series orders um, and weeks have gotten shorter. So you sort of have to in order to get things done. Um, Also, I personally... um, I'm very bad at setting boundaries for myself. So I love thinking about work, uh, especially if it's a show I love. Um, I found it really hard to turn it off this year uh, with Girls Five Eva um, because it was like I just was having such a blast. Um, however, you know, being at home and working on Zoom, the work life balance can be really wonderful because you're also able to take little moments of self care to yourself you know, I could, you know, when we broke for lunch, I could, you know, eat with my husband, pet the cat, go for a walk. Like instead of commuting an hour and a half to the Fox lot for single parents, I would just log off and I'd be home. And so even though I was thinking a lot about the show, I felt like I had a really nice work-life balance. Um, so I think there's definitely, um, you know, everyone's different in terms of what they feel is balancing for them. Um, but I personally found, um, zoom to sort of help that even though again it definitely has some of its uh some of its issues with writer's rooms oh
5: hey i I
7: had a question you said um earlier that some writers get put onto set after writing yes what was your role in doing that on set i mean yeah
6: Yeah, absolutely so oftentimes um if you i would say uh, uh i only had one show thus far where this wasn't the case uh but most of the time Uh, If you get assigned an episode to write, you then are in charge of producing that episode. Um, Especially once you go up the ladder of like staff writer, story editor, executive story editor, then you're actually co-producer, producer, producer, supervising producer. And once you have that producer credit, you're definitely expected to be producing your episode. Um, And so that consists of a lot of things. Uh, First, you will be on all of the um, meetings in terms of like the production meeting where you sit with a... the heads of every department. And you talk about things like costumes and props and time of day. And you answer questions that you never thought you would have to answer about your script. Like when they're like, when you wrote that joke about the grill, what type of grill did you mean? And you're like, oh no, I didn't think about the grill. I just thought it was a funny joke. And now you have to make a grill. So I should probably figure out what that means. Um, And so you go through production wise and you address Um, everything that you would need to get the show made. Um, And then there's a tone meeting where you meet with the director, uh, where you discuss like the tone of each scene and to make sure you're on the same page where you're like, you know, this tone, um, they're in a deep fight, but it's supposed to be funny. So how can we, you know, help that translate through blocking and through um, all of that stuff. And the directors are usually, I've only had positive experiences with directors being collaborative and wonderful. Um, And then um, you field a ton of emails with casting. You cast all the smaller roles, and uh, and you don't necessarily, as the writer, get the say. But typically, you um, will say this is what I like, and then default to your boss. And your boss, um, the showrunner, will make all the final decisions. Um, and then once that is all done, you'll be on set for your episode. So then, once you get to set, um, it's really fascinating. And I think it was actually this was one of the biggest. Um, For me, one of the scariest parts to learn um, and one of the parts where I felt the most imposter syndrome, since I wasn't lucky enough to have these cool courses like you guys did, when I got to set, I was like, oh my God, I'm in the way. I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't trust my instincts here. Um, I I don't know much about cameras or lighting or blocking. So I I had to really learn on the job in terms of how to give notes. Because when you're at the writer on set, you are basically standing in Uh, for your showrunner and telling, um, collaborating with the director and the actors, but making sure you're getting exactly what your showrunner wants. And unlike movies where the director is the boss, in TV, the showrunner is the boss. So your job is to sort of play boss and make sure you are getting Um, everything your boss wants. Um, So it's everything from, you know, learning how to give actor notes uh, and uh, learning how to talk to the director, understanding if blocking looks weird or or if blocking, you know, people aren't moving in the scene and it's feeling long, how can you add movements? And being able to like articulate that in a way that is productive and also kind because nobody wants to be working on set with someone giving rude notes because all these people are also artists in their own right. Um, And then also knowing when you can be collaborative and let things go. Um, You know, If if an actor doesn't feel comfortable saying a joke and and you're like, great, let's pitch alts then and being able to come up with different jokes on set so that everyone feels like a part of the process. Um, And then again, also knowing when to push back if somebody's, doesn't want to do something that you know your boss really wants them to do um, you know as long as it's not something horrible like <laughs> um but being able to just uh have those conversations so it's definitely um something that I think you have to learn and relearn a million times and it changes based on who you're on set with um, and who your actors are and who you're, you know it's 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 working with people um, but it can also be really rewarding and really fun to suddenly see you get to be there when your stuff is put up, and when they actually start to produce your stuff to see, like, oh my God, all these people made a stage for you based on the thing you wrote, and and you know these these everyone from the cameramen to the extras to the grips like is is doing a really invaluable um, is doing invaluable work, and it's just um, such a cool collaboration to actually get to be there for.
5: My question is, with increasing popularity of shows like Euphoria do you take account of what makes that show popular in your writer's room? Like, say, they include a lot of hypersexual things, they focus on their character's fashion, the music in that, do you take account of that?
6: Sure, I mean, I think it's always, um, I think you can always learn from what other people are doing, uh, but I do find that There are a lot of times in the industry where someone does something really well, like euphoria, for example, and they start to do something awesome. And then you get a lot of copycats out of the woodwork and you get a lot of people being like, well, that worked, let's do what they do. And, and this happens, I find out of, panic. And it happens to artists and it happens to networks and studios, um, especially because if they're the ones spending money, they're like, okay, euphoria worked. Now we want our euphoria. So every time there's a hit, you hear people being like, we just want things that are like Ted Lasso. And you're like, okay, but Ted Lasso already exists. So how can I make something else that's good and not necessarily just try to create the B version of something great that we already love? Um, That being said, I always, always find it helpful and productive to um watch and read and you know see what is working and what isn't because yes i mean you can add, there's always things to learn and be inspired by and if you happen to personally be really inspired by um like the fashion how can you make in your show how can you have fashion be part of the characters in your show that maybe isn't exactly like euphoria but but specific to you and your characters um, yeah i think you can always learn from that stuff <laughs>
8: You know, luckily we haven't had a a writer strike in a, in a while. But I want to know how the recent talks of a crew strike scared you, or or did it scare you and fellow yeah. writers, or how did it affect you and your community?
6: Yeah, I'm I'm very pro IATSE, um, and I absolutely would have understood. Um, n- no part of me is scared for a strike. Um, I'd be significantly more scared if we were just continuing to exist with. Um, rules like, you know, eight hour turnaround, which is so inhumane. That means that the second the director calls wrap, the the crew members have eight hours to pack up their stuff, drive home, see their family, have work-life balance, sleep, and then get up and commute back to work. And that's inhumane especially considering you know I'm pretty sure doctors say you should sleep eight hours um so uh, personally I I think you know I they they negotiated up to 10 hours I believe um which I still don't think is enough um I do hope we continue um I'll always you know have Iatsis back in terms of um you know guilds have to stick together I think um, it's really important to stick up for all the people uh, on your sets who are helping make it a thing um, to keep the process as huma- not just humane, but enjoyable. I mean, bare minimum humane, you know, for every job. Hello. <laughs> Hi.
5: <laughs> yeah, actually, I was going to bounce off that because um, you mentioned that not that long ago there were shows that had you know 22 24 episodes and that was kind of standard and it in a matter of just a sh- couple I mean it seems like a couple of years maybe it's been yeah. longer but it just seems like all of a sudden most shows at least yeah. on network shows are mm-hmm. yeah 8 10 12 episodes yeah how has that changed as being a working writer um working on shows
6: Sure. I mean, I think it's just, again, there's less consistency because not only are series shorter, it's significantly more rare for shows to go multiple seasons. Um, I mean, Netflix, I've heard, I don't know if this is real, but I've heard that Netflix, if your second season doesn't do better than the first, even if it's still doing well, they will not give it a third. I don't know if that's real across the board. I know they have a bunch of things, but all of this being said is that it's, it's significantly hard to get more seasons. So because of that, you as a writer, find yourself in the position of having to find more jobs. Whereas for example, my friends who were on new girl had consistent 23 episode orders for, you know, eight years, which is, unbelievable. They were not only able to work consistently, make money, um, also uh, residuals, which are still a thing, but significantly different because things don't go to syndication anymore. So they were making a lot more money off residuals, which Now you just make a percentage off of streaming and it's um, oftentimes not nearly as much. And uh, they also were just able to learn more as writers because when you are writing 23 episodes a year, you are just working that muscle like crazy. Um, So, you know, they were able to raise to the top and now a lot of them are co-EPs and are just brilliant. Um, whereas a lot of newer writers nowadays are climbing the ranks, but with like six episodes under their belt and finding themselves in positions of feeling, um, you know, unprepared to be at CoEP level and going up against people who have 200 episodes of comedy under their belts when they have, you know, 20. Um, and that's not always the case. You know, there's other ways to get your reps in, but um, just things to think about.
0: Um, you might not be able to answer this question completely because this is like a public uh, podcast thing, but... i
6: um... <laughs> terrified. <laughs>
0: you mentioned that you, like, had really good experiences with all the directors you worked with. Was that, like, by design, or did you just get really lucky with the jobs you took?
6: Yeah, I... I... Listen, we all are aware that um, Hollywood is incredibly imperfect. There are a lot of hypocrisies in this industry of people doing lip service for things uh, and not following through in action um, in a million different ways. Um, we've all been familiar with how things have began to evolve, but still have a lot of room to grow. Um, I personally have gotten very, very lucky in terms of having working with wonderful people. But yes, things like directors on set are by design. And that's that's from having wonderful bosses who know how to hire wonderful people. So I, I've been really, really lucky to have had, you know, um, the JJ's and the Meredith's and the Andrew's um, master of the world who will hire, who, who can really curate a smart, wonderful, safe team um, for their cast and crew. Uh,
1: one question and um it's kind of contingent. Um, do you find writing portfolios to be a useful tool in like someone trying to break into the business nowadays? And if so, like, what do you recommend? Like a spec sketch pilot? Sure.
6: Yeah. So it totally depends on what you want to work on. So I personally, um, I don't know, I, I have not heard of anyone staffing someone based on a Um, spec necessarily. Um, However, specs can be really helpful to get into writer's programs. So I wouldn't say they're all for naught. Um, And I also think it's just a really brilliant way to um, be able to see, to emulate characters you didn't create and learn how to do that because that is the job of being in a writer's room um, is, is seeing your boss's characters and then helping, um, you know, hone in on their tone and uh, and their character voices um, but I would say um, if you're looking to staff um, or if you're looking to get representation uh, it's always good to have at least two samples that you know are out of the park um, when I first was looking at agents I had two scripts and they liked one and they didn't like the other. And then I accidentally caught my, I accidentally was, they were like, do you have another? And I was like, yes. Cause I thought they meant my first one. And they were like, great. Let us read your third script. And I was like, oh no. So I had to go home and write a whole new script in like six days because I was like, totally got it. Because again, like I'm sure you've all heard this before, but I do firmly believe that opportunity meets preparedness. And if you do have Multiple things for them to choose from. Um, not only will there be more for them to like, but they, it will also show that you're prolific. And agents and managers really want to rep people that they know are going to continue to write and work, um, especially because you know culture changes so fast. And um, and because of that art changes fast and knowing that you're not just gonna sit on one sample for 10 years and ride that, but you're gonna continue to develop things that will help get you staffed and also that you can sell um, will make them more money. So of course they want to see that from you. Um, and then in terms of staffing from you know, the writer standpoint, because if you're gonna staff, the, the uh, writers will read your work. Um, yeah, just knowing that you have a really polished sample that you can send out uh, to get you staffed on shows. Oftentimes, um, people like to read things that are tonally similar to what they are creating. This is not a hundred percent the case. Um, I got staffed on Abby's, which is a multicam off of like a really dark, uh, twisted comedy. So I was very surprised about that, but like, it does happen as long as, you know, the showrunner likes your voice, but more often than not, I find if someone's, you know, staffing an action comedy. They are looking to read action comedy scripts so that they can um, know that you can do that specific skill. So if there are shows that you want to work for, I find that it's helpful to have samples that are at least remotely in that same vein. Um, even if it just means like, if you want to write for a 60 minute show, you have to have a 60 minute sample. If you want to write for a hard hitting comedy, there better be 10 jokes on that first page. So just making sure that you are sending in, um, scripts that would best fit, uh, the job you're trying to get.
1: Thank you.
6: Yeah. And so, oh, and similarly with sketches, obviously. If you want to write sketch comedy, have a sketch packet.
5: Okay. Well, I have, unless someone online has a question, I, I do have one last question because we are- Great. We are getting to a point in this class where we are, we're writing 12 episodes. <laughs> Amazing. That's so
6: freaking cool, you
5: guys. <laughs> wow. It's a, it's a lot of episodes. So we, it, we're we writing- ready. Twelve and each um, we have like groups of four working on six and groups of four working on the Amazing. And two showrunners and we're combining all of these. Obviously, we have to like the the we're working on a serial. Mm-hmm. So, although it will have a little arc within the episode, it's all going to bleed onto every great. I guess my question is like how do you work with other writers and people in the writer's room when you're working on something that's not just a singular episode, but it's more going to another.
6: We keep, um, when we're in the room, uh, whiteboards or, or post-it notes like crazy, especially you know single parents was 23 episodes and JJ knew set like points in the story that she wanted to be hit like when people would break up when people would get together and so pacing wise we knew when we were going to hit those tent poles so everyone no matter what you were um writing like whatever episode ended up to be yours you knew what you were coming before or after. So for example, if you knew the episode before yours, someone breaks up, that's going to affect the dialogue and in your next episode. So it's really knowing, um, and and, and Meredith did this really well too, of just knowing like structurally, and this is a lot of beginning of the season work too. um, And it always evolves throughout the season, but being aware of like, what you want your overall arc to be, character-wise and also story-wise, um, so that you're making sure to like pacing hit those benchmarks and um, and uh, be able to you know know what each person is working on uh, depending on what stage you are in each script.
5: Oh, awesome! Okay, yeah. yeah. That has been a challenge. Um,
6: I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if you have a bunch of note cards, it's really helpful to write all of the characters in one line and then all of the episode numbers. And have you done this? We, we
5: have an online program that's even better a bunch of yeah it's a bunch of notes
6: <laughs> that's great that's great and yes and it's definitely hard of course and like honestly it's that's why some seasons of things are wonderful and some are not your favorite because it's so hard writing is hard and sometimes you, and sometimes it all comes out in the wash and you end up looking brilliant and you're like we didn't plan for that but we sure look smart by not planning and then pulling something from episode three into episode six and suddenly it looks like an amazing callback and there's ways to like you know commit to what you have and like shape the end of your season to make it work structurally um you know given the fact given the time constraints of not being able to like have endless time to make a perfect season before you have to start writing scripts um but yeah it sounds like you're doing it all right this is yeah you guys that is truly the coolest class it's fun (laughs) it it
5: rocks (laughs) it's
6: definitely fun
5: that's so so cool (laughs) Well, you know, I I can't thank you enough. This was oh my gosh. thank you guys. This is so much fun, and we we've learned a lot.
6: <laughs> so special. I'm gonna to try to hook you up with Sarah Tapscott too, who she's like on her birthday trip in Portugal right now. But she was when she heard you guys were writing like some lives crazy. of college girls. She was like, oh my god. Um, so I'm sure she would definitely <laughs> pop in at some point if you're interested.
5: Oh yes, and that has been a fun show too. <laughs> to fake. Write so off. fun. <laughs> I I'm sure
6: that's so. What a fun. Yeah, that's gotta rock. That's so great. <laughs>
5: oh man thank you again like seriously like I know I keep saying that but it I really appreciate calling in this is no great.
6: thank you so much for having me it, truly you guys are all so thank you for being so kind um and no one yells at me for being rambly and that's rare and I appreciate oh, it oh that's what we want <laughs> <laughs> wonderful um well yeah break legs with your season I can't wait to uh, watch it <laughs> <laughs> oh absolutely well, yeah. All right, Taylor. Thanks, guys. All right, take
1: care. Bye, everybody. Bye. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.